listening to The Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system await. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome, my friends, to the sixth episode of The Renegade Economist, George's podcast, trying to make sense of this world where some own property rights that go up in value, whether they step foot in that suburb or not. If only we all had a job such as that. I recently recognised that the great Australian dream, the white picket fence has now been replaced by this immense drive to access passive income. That's income you earn when you don't actually produce anything for society. It really is the bedrock of inequality of so much that is entrapping our so-called democracies away from the necessary change to deal with uh, the issues we have relating to climate, relating to inequity, relating to our the sort of freedom we need when we look in our wallets. And today's episode, we are looking at natural resources and natural monopolies. We so often hear that uh, the mining industry is such a powerful employer of people in the country and barely 3% of the nation uh, work in such an industry. Gina Reinhardt's Roy Hill Mine is uh, busy boasting about the use of automated uh, trucks these days, so uh, the role of uh, drivers is is diminishing as we head into this automated future. And whilst uh, we recognise through the Australian Bureau of Statistics excellent environmental economic accounting system that our mineral resources are worth $386 billion. The value of our land dwarfs that at $5.9 trillion. Mineral resources are just 6.5% of uh, the land component itself. But uh, it's always been a big question for nations. How do we share these natural resource rents, the ability of these mineral rents to increase from just $19.8 billion in 1988-89 to now this $386 billion? Wow, wouldn't you like to be in that game? Wouldn't we all? Well... Our job uh, in the world of economics is to recognise that if society makes certain decisions, allowing such unearned incomes to go to those who supposedly own that subsection of the earth, well, there are consequences for the rest of society. And so much of it relates to this driving inequality that... uh, is born out of uh, this access to passive income. And it brought me back to uh, the the minerals resource rent tax debate uh, that happened in way back in 2010. And there was Kevin Rudd in Western Australia talking about Andrew Forrest, the mining magnate who most epitomised the... Uh, 
the takedown of the Rudd government over this uh, super profits resource tax, it was initially called. And I didn't know this, but Andrew Forrest's great-great-uncle was the first Premier of Western Australia, John Forrest. And in the 1890s, he was uh, confronted with the same sort of opposition that Kevin Rudd was back in those days. And Rudd goes on to say, Forrest supported mining but was often opposed by gold miners for his commitment to using the proceeds of the gold rush to leave a lasting endowment for the whole of Western Australia. He was determined to make lasting investments in public works. Forrest wanted to make the prosperity of the present pay for the hoped-for success of the future, but this did not endear him to gold miners. And of course, Andrew Forrest saw this as a largely a socialist distribution of capital over creation of value. Well, Andrew, did you create the value of those resources? Did you polish up that iron ore to uh, make it uh, worth some $165 a tonne? Or did you just dig it out of the ground, something that had been built up through mineral deposits over millions and millions of years and you were just lucky to uh, be in the right place at the right time with uh, government gazetted approval to dig out those minerals. So from this increase from some 18-odd billion to $366 billion in mineral resource values, we need to figure out how to tax that in a way that does encourage some investment but also ensures that present and future generations are all shareholders in this common wealth. How can we do that in a way that placates both sides of the equation. Well, Kevin Rudd came out with the super profits resource tax, which was meant to get the public on board. But because there was such a lack of consultation, and because the property lobby threw some $20 million into the campaign to overturn it, uh, they hired better advertising companies, had slicker TV production, had better sound bites when it came to the media. And the technocrats in the Australian government couldn't cut through. And from that, uh, we saw this huge distortion where the super profits resource tax was uh, brought down to earth. The change of government, Julia Gillard coming in, negotiating with uh, the three big mining companies, Rio, Extrata and BHP, behind closed doors, uh, Wayne Swan was uh, busy doing that as treasurer at the time and uh, they came up with uh, an elaborate scheme to encourage investment by allowing exuberant depreciation write-offs. And it seemed like the design of the tax was so that companies could continue to invest during this minerals boom in in the early 2010s, claim lots of upfront depreciation And in a Machiavellian way, that would write down the available profits to be taxed and their campaign will continue to remove the tax as a deterrence on investment and a threat to so many thousand jobs. I was always sus of these resource 
profit taxes because of that ability of accountants to manipulate the cost base so that they could uh, pretty well write off their profits. And that's what we've seen. And so it's been very good to see that uh, the Central Alliance's Rex Patrick has announced there's going to be a new inquiry into how we tax oil and gas multinationals. And he tweets, I want transformational change moving forward, perhaps an Aussie national oil company to benefit Aussies. Well, my tweet was, look, we should be basing it on what they've done in Alaska with the Alaska Permanent Fund, a trust set up in 1974 by a Republican, Jay Hammond, that now is worth some $45 billion. And each year, every Alaskan, anyone who's lived there longer than 12 months uh, from children onwards receives a share of the interest earned on that over time. So that uh, they're getting between one to $2,000 a year. It's based on a five-year average. And uh, it's, that smooths out the boom bus. And from it, they've got the lowest debt, the lowest inequity in America. So uh, we should be doing something similar here in Australia. Because, yeah, it's just embarrassing to see that uh, so many other nations capture a higher share of their resource rents this rising value of natural resources. And so remember, uh, when we talk about rents and economics, that's a surplus value after the costs and a normal rate of return has been accounted for. And so this is the difference between the price at which an output from a resource can be sold and its respective extraction and production costs, including a normal return. And in Norway, Equinor, a Norwegian multinational petroleum and wind energy company operating in 36 countries paid $28 billion in tax on $105 billion in revenue. So around about 25% of their revenue was paid in tax. The Mexican state-owned petroleum company Pemex paid $29 billion on $99 billion in revenue. And so there you go, about 33%. And the state-owned Saudi Arabian Aramco paid $67 billion on $478 billion, so a bit under 20%. But here in Australia, our multinationals pay very, very little when it comes to these resource rents. And so uh, this new Senate Standing Economics Committee will analyse the tax systems covering big oil and gas and make recommendations for the Australian tax system. So we can only hope that we move away from a, a, a tax system that allows companies to write off profits so easily and massage their books so that uh, any potential resource rents to be paid are minimised. We need a fair share too. Our group, Prosper Australia, would prefer a 10% royalty on the market value of all oil and gas projects, and that could replace the resource revenues from the suite of petroleum resource rent taxes, the crude excises and royalties that are out there today. So natural monopolies. Again, these are companies that can push prices up above 
the cost of production and a normal return to claim this magic money, this ability to do what other industries can't do due to competition. Competition leads to lower prices, but in this day and age where MBA graduates learn how to design market barriers to enforce their own monopolistic pressures, prices are gouging the public. And how's this one? Amazon has just adjusted its product search system to more prominently feature listings that are more profitable for the company, said people who worked on the project. A move contested internally that could favour Amazon's own brands. So monopolies in practice uh, benefit from high barriers to entry through large fixed costs to start up. So this leads to protection from competition. And so without oversight, a collection of powerful firms and an oligopoly can act in unison to subtly push prices ever higher. In Australia, we have a group called Metcash and on their website they say, we believe that it is absolutely vital to Australia that there is a sustainable, independent, family-owned business sector. Independent retailers support their local communities. We help them to be the best store in town by providing merchandising, operational and marketing support across our food, liquor and hardware pillars. These are uh, the wholesalers who provide the goods for IGA, Campbell's, Home Timber and Hardware, the Bottle-O and Mitre 10. But have a listen to this ACCC transcript to garner how market power acts to, to gouge the consumer. All right, so this is Mr O'Donovan in... Uh, some sort of government inquiry, talking to Mr. Reitzer from Metcash. All right, says Mr. Donovan, but so you wouldn't accept that 1% improvement in your earnings before interest and taxes, your EBIT percentage, represents in any way Metcash taking a bigger margin? Mr. Reitzer, it does represent Metcash taking a bigger margin because if you look at the overall profitability in the industry, and if you specifically look at my competitor that sets that profitability, Woolworths, Woolworths determine how much profit there is on the table for the independent retailers and Metcash to share. Donovan, all right, so you have effectively followed your, your network has followed Woolworths up. Yes, Mr. Reitzer says. And that's what happens. Uh, basically, they worked in subtle unison to push prices ever higher and uh, that's where I I do like the power of competition to uh, to push prices down in an edition of our progress magazine from last year entitled economic concentration rent seeking patents and political collusion I uh, include an article that featured uh, uh, that choice.com.au had, had featured uh, looking at some of Andrew Lee's 
work, uh, the opposition assistant treasurer, and uh, comparing Australia to America, in commercial banking, Australia's top four firms have 94% of market share, whereas in America, it's just 26%. In supermarkets, 91% here, 31% there. And liquor retailing, 78% compared to 10% in America. So immense concentration of industries here. And that is uh, a huge concern for our pricing framework because it means that uh, with less competition, prices head north. And one of the areas I've been most concerned with over recent years is the monopoly powers in gas distribution. And remember that gas pretty well sets the price for our entire energy market in terms of opportunity costs. People don't want to use electricity. Well, gas and the prices they set really determine what the minimum prices uh, that the power sector can charge. So when we have these immense gas monopolies charging huge access rights for uh, piping their gas to these markets from the uh, gas fields, that is uh, a big concern because uh, it's what is a major contributing factor to this energy price controversy that the renewable energy sector keeps getting hit with. And in a report from December 2016, Dr. Michael Vertigan, AC, uh, had a, this paper called Examination of the Current Test of, for the Regulation of Gas Pipelines. He says gas pipelines tend to have natural monopoly characteristics derived from the following three factors. Investments in pipelines are indivisible, economies of scale exist, and sunk costs are large. The natural monopoly characteristics of gas pipelines can create a high barrier to entry for prospective competitors to an existing pipeline, which in turn tends to enhance the market power of existing gas pipeline operators. Internal analysis carried out by one pipeline operator indicated that it is earning 70% more revenue than it would if it was subject to full regulation. So we do need effective regulation. And part of the problem we have within regulation is that they have a private profitability test rather than a natural monopoly test looking at how much higher these prices are pushed above the cost of production. So we need to get our regulators recognising that these are monopolies. It is so infuriating that uh, finally in 2019, it seems like the ACCC is onto the airports, these privatised airports we have where the landing fee licences sold to Qantas and Virgin and the like are being recognised as uh, another form of price gouging. So all throughout the economy, this price gouging continues. There needs to be a quantification of how much this is draining the economy, these excess prices that are leaving our pockets and heading to those who have this ability to claim this magic money. There was a fascinating discussion between Andrew Lees and 
Rod Sims, the head of the uh, C, the Consumer and Competition Watchdog. And uh, Andrew Lee states, uh, how concerned are you that the problems of excessive oligopoly power in the Australian economy are bad and potentially getting worse? And Sims responds, I think there's definitely a problem. Given your background, I might just put things this way. That famous solo growth model that says the rate of growth and the economy is a function of labour, capital and productivity. I certainly have some discussions with economists who say you could have a negative sign there for the economic rents generated from excess monopolies. So I think the economic rents from concentrated behaviour are a problem. I think it is a drag on the, on the economy. Is it getting worse? I don't know. Goodness me. I wish they would read our trickle-up economics report to see how we quantify the power of monopoly, these economic rents. No one's doing this work. We need it to be done as more and more industries are privatised. It's such a big, big area of business, such a big, big area of concern to government. It should be a mandate of some government agency to do this work. Why is a little NGO like Prosper Australia left to do it? And I'll put this link in the show notes because it's a fascinating read of Hansard. In this same Standing Economics Committee inquiry, Adam Bant zeroes in on uh, the effect of oligopolistic practice in energy pricing. And he says, this is in part because of data that's publicly available and in part because of reports you've produced. For example, on 4th of September, there were periods of dropping into negative pricing. This is electricity pricing. With negative pricing, you would expect that's because there's too much electricity being provided, more than is needed. And most reasonable people might expect that some generators would wind back the amount of electricity that they're putting into the grid. But there's evidence that coal-fired power generators have been increasing the amount that they've been putting into the grid during these periods of negative pricing. You might expect that's an ideal time for pumped hydro storage, for example, Wivenhoe, to start switching on because they're going to be able to make money from storing electricity while they are not pumping. And they just happen to be owned by one of these dominant market players that has heavy investments in fossil fuels. Is that an indication of the market working well, that coal-fired power ramps up at a time when prices are negative and pushes out solar, which is what has been happening? And the discussion continued on and moved over to poles and wires and looked at uh, a Grattan Institute report called Down to the Wire, a sustainable electricity network for Australia that estimated that there was somewhere in the order of $20 billion of overinvestment in the the poles and wires, the gold plating of our poles and wires to deal with uh, the three or four days of excessive heat, uh, the whole depreciated optimised replacement cost system uh, not discussed here, not really discussed anywhere. Still, we haven't got on to Dork, but uh, hopefully sometime in the future with our lobbying and people like uh, Michael West's work, we'll uh, continue to work that into uh, the policy framework. But, 
Yes, more dodgy depreciation techniques. So, uh, yeah, basically this Adam Band tirade uh, alluded me to the fact that uh, uh, this ongoing court case of South Australian wind companies are being taken to court for poor processes regarding uh, that blackout during uh, that big storm they had over there. But it was okay for energy companies to turn the grid back on an hour later than expected due to their poor poor processes. Why are the wind companies taking the court, but the incumbents, the insiders, the dirty power allowed to uh, avoid the threat of litigation? So the importance of effective regulation has come to the fore again in our energy market. We've talked about gas, but the entire energy market is broken. The gas distribution issue is one. The retail pricing is another major sector where there's issues. Uh, The government's announced uh, the Prohibiting Energy Market Misconduct Bill, nicknamed the Big Stick, and they've got in there... Uh, concerns about clauses that directly relate to contract liquidity prohibition to prevent energy companies from withholding hedge contracts for the purpose of substantially lessening competition. A wholesale conduct prohibition to stop generators from manipulating the spot market, such as withholding supply. I've told those stories before about how, I think it was last summer, there was uh, a company's deciding to repair generators yeah sure some of them broke down it seemed like these repairs were going on just a little bit too often uh, on these super hot days there was a number of media stories around that and of course when we knock out another 10 percent of uh, energy production that leads to huge profiteering for the generation side of uh, the industry so Come on, regulators, get on the case. We know this is what they're doing. And if Australia is to have a competitive economy, we need to keep natural monopoly prices down uh, so that these inputs we all require uh, can be used at competitive pricing so that it can assist our export industry. And in terms of natural resource rents, we should be claiming a share of those resource rents as a tax base. So we don't need to laden workers, we don't need to laden businesses with higher taxes than need be. Because remember, if we do tax natural resources and claim a significant share of that increase in resource valuation over time, They cannot pass that cost on because of competition from other producers around the world. So uh, that's one of the big misnomers. They always say, look, if uh, you charge a resource rent tax, we'll pass it on. Well, no, they can't because they will lose customers if that occurs. When it comes to natural monopolies, there's a number of approaches there. None of them are perfect. I still wish we had... Um, a better system, a better understanding of how to tax natural monopolies. One, of course, is to base uh, a, a form of a licensing fee based on the value of that monopoly. The banking licensing fee is one, where instead of them doctoring their books to avoid all these taxes, just 
hit them with a 10% tax based on the value of their entire business. That can apply across the board. For these airport monopolies, similar thing. Property valuers come in, value the land, value uh, the landing rights that they're auctioning off and the community gets a share of it at a fixed percentage rate. From this, we remove a lot of the complexity. We keep a lid on some of the pricing and hopefully it helps the Australian economy become more competitive. Our workers face a lower tax burden and the driving wealth gap to subside somewhat as this easy profit is taxed away. All right, my name is Carl Fitzgerald. Get in touch via renegades at earthsharing.org.au, renegades at earthsharing.org.au. Love to see some comments, love to see some recommendations on iTunes, on all the apps out there. So uh, thanks very much for your attention. I hope this helps you understand uh, one of the, you know, some of the big issues. You know, there's, as Frank Stillwell said in our recent 128th annual dinner, there's so much information floating around out there, but to understand these structural issues that affect everything else you know it's so important we understand them and we recognize what we have to do to help this change occur the future's going to get radical check the show notes at prosper.org.au